Welcome to Be There Done That, a Catholic history podcast with Lillian Jake. Today we will be talking about the Virgen de Guadalupe and Juan Diego. The Virgin of Guadalupe, for those of you who aren't familiar, is um, a vision of the Virgin that um, presented herself to Juan Diego in, in um, near Mexico City. And um, it is very important to the Hispanic culture, especially Mexico, because she obviously appeared there. And a lot of her imagery actually um, points to that native culture. And so it's, it appears in the, or she appears in 1531. And then the shrine kind of takes off more over the subsequent centuries and becomes this iconic, well, I guess the image becomes iconic and it becomes this major pilgrimage destination in Mexico, right? And there's, I guess there's a couple different miracles along the way that they're connected with it that we would talk about. Do we want to go through the timeline kind of like we normally do? And then yeah. maybe we'll talk more about like Marian apparitions That's, in general. Uh, well, yes. And then I guess just like, what brought us here to this topic? Well, I guess I could talk about that. So what Why brought us? What, yeah. what brought us to this topic is like um, I had asked Jake if he knew anything about Marian apparitions, and um, he went on his search because he has a little bit more time to <laughs> go through those little wormholes. Where they say wormholes or rabbit holes or rabbit holes, but I like wormholes holes better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I did go down kind of a wormhole because I I went from this. And I should have been diving deep into Guadalupe, and I kind of started getting into more like of the Mariology in general, the theology of Mary, and exploring that more. But and I'm not sure what presented this question to me. I can't remember quite what made me start asking the question. Um, I really can't remember as to why. I don't know if it was like watching The Chosen and watching like Mary, their depiction of Mary. I don't know. I can't remember if it was like a mix of that and then just like once again trying to strengthen my own knowledge of my my cultural background to be able to um, present it well to our kids and have them be able to understand where, you know, things come from. Yeah. I mean, I know that it's, I was going to say, <laughs> one, the Mary definitely is like a controversial figure for people coming into the church or looking at it or sometimes when people leave the church i think that that's something that's they're gonna have strong opinions about as funny because we were driving by on the route up to um a soccer practice we pass a clearly like an evangelical spanish-speaking church but right outside they have this giant it's a lutheran church too because i had to look it up yeah they have a big uh virgin of guadalupe like I, don't, I wouldn't call it a statue, I guess. It is sort of a statue, but it it's is, colorful. It's a statue. Yeah, but it, it's, a, it's right in front of the church, and it's an evangelical church, but they kept the Guadalupe part and got rid of the the whole all the rest of the Catholic apparatus, I guess, which <laughs> seems sort of like the opposite of what <laughs> Protestantism is normally historically done, but, you know, they can, they're, they're doing it their way. So it's a really powerful symbol, I guess, clearly. Um, but it, so timeline, and then more discussion, I guess? Mm-hmm. Just Mary so people know what we're talking about? Yeah. Okay, so 1500s or 16th century. I've always found that confusing. 
Mexico, which is um, at the time getting named New Spain. That's formerly well, but should, should Aztec we go Empire. Further, just a little bit back to see when Cortez came into. I mean, I'm not ready to tell the story in detail, but yeah, I think this is about a decade after. Yeah, it's not too much. The conquistadors reach <clears throat> mainland longer. Mexico and have a dramatic sudden conquest of the Aztecs. And they, by the way, they never called themselves the Aztecs. They were called the Mexica, which is how we get the word Mexico. But Mexico proper was central Mexico where, where the Aztecs were and where Mexico City now is. Yeah, and I, I just want to point out really quick that remember that there's more than the Mexica tribe or the Aztec tribe. There's different tribes living around. Yeah, and I think actually even Juan Diego is not technically, he's not a Mexica. He is a... I think he's from Texcoco. I think that's how you say it. And they're one of the allies of the of the Aztecs. I'm just I'm gonna have to keep switching back and forth because if I keep saying Mexica, no one's gonna know what I'm talking about. It's okay. The Aztecs, the people who were in charge, you know, the main people whose capital became Mexico City, it was called Tenochtitlan at the time, or Tenochtitlan, however you want to say it. Um, their capital, that city, becomes Mexico City later. At the time, it's an island in the middle of a lake with all these causeways and floating gardens, and the conquistadors thought it was epic-looking and would look like Venice. And that still existed partly at the time of this story. It had been partly destroyed. But that's going to become Mexico City. And in the in the metro, in the area, there's a couple other close allies of the Aztecs, um, one of which is going to be Juan Diego's people. And then surrounding them are some people who do not like the Aztecs. And that's what Lily is talking about. So the, I think the main ones are the Tlaxcalans, and they ally with the Spanish, who are very small in number, give them lots of military support, and help them to take down the Aztecs. Yeah, I don't know if we want to go into deep dive into like the whole background, but I just wanted to kind of... Yeah, I mean, there's some that we have to touch on because, I mean, it's a religious no, story, I, I and they're religious people, and part of the reason why they were disliked was because they would the Aztecs would have these wars to get prisoners of war to sacrifice to their gods and that was a major part of their yeah their religion but there was an alternate kind of strain to an aztec native religion where they thought at least in the toltec other culture that's kind of in older in the background of central mexico they thought that there was also one transcendent single living god kind of behind all these other gods who was unreachable and but was a supreme deity And there's going to be some epithets that he has, that God, that are going to get attached and come up again um, during the conversion of the Aztecs in the Juan Diego story. Which doesn't make sense maybe when I say it now, but I'll touch on it later when we get to the actual parts of the apparitions. It's not not like centuries later from the conquest that... No, it's like a decade later. Yeah. Yeah. But Juan Diego is actually, I think his age is in his, he's in his 50s at the time of the apparitions that he experiences. Do we want to just give his little background story as to why, like, why is he with his uncle? Like, Yeah. So he had converted um, with his wife, whose name was Maria Lucia. And his name, or at least after baptism, she took the name Maria Lucia. He took the name Juan Diego. His real name was something like Eagle That Speaks. I can find the Native American super awesome name in a second and try to pronounce that for you. But remember, his name is not Juan Diego because he's born long before the Spanish show up. And then when he is baptized, kind of like Nicholas Black Elk, his name was Black Elk. Really, it was something else in Lakota. Then he takes the name Nicholas because of the same day that he's 
baptized on Juan Diego. I don't know if it's related to his when he's baptized, but takes the name Juan Diego. He was going um, to actually, I think he's going to mass or to a, a catechesis kind of class on the morning when he first sees the Virgin Mary, which is December 9th, 1531. At that point, did, did you want to say the name really quickly? So his Indian name was Kwautlatoatzin, which is how I'm going to pronounce it. Kwautlatoatzin. It means eagle that speaks, probably more like speaking eagle, I would think. But it's kind of, even that name's kind of mystically suggestive because it kind of sounds like, I mean, something that flies and speaking. Because remember, even on the Mexican flag, it's a, it's the symbol, the eagle sitting on the cactus with the snake. snake that's snake. from the Aztec, like, national origins story. Like, that's their founding myth yeah. is that when they get to the island <laughs> in, in the lake, they see that eagle. eagle. And that's where, how they snake. decide to. Yeah. So this is, anyway, this is all kind of suggestive of a new foundation, I think. I don't know. That's my take on that name. But, um, but anyway, Maria Lucia had passed away. Juan Diego's in his 50s. He's living with his uncle, who I think is called Juan Bernardino. I don't know if he his native name is preserved. But um, they're a Christian family. There's not been like a wave of conversions into the church at this point in time. That Obviously, Spanish have conquered central Mexico, Catholicism's official religion, and Native American religion is not looked upon favorably at the time. No. Um, but there's, there's not been a corresponding, like big response to the missionary efforts, but he is one early fruit of that. And he's going to be, he's going to, to church basically early in the morning, one morning in December, um, when he passes by a hill called Tepeyac. And you said this is now basically within the Mexico city Metro. That's what I thought. Yeah. And I, I, from my understanding it is. Okay. So it's, but I mean, Mexico city has also Expanded it's so really it's one of the biggest cities in the world, isn't it? Now, yeah. um, I mean, it, it may have been like outside the city, like for a while there. I think, but, I think at the time it was, yeah. But now it's just the city so massive; it's part of the city. Yeah, and the lake's pretty much gone, right? Yeah. Um, but th- at this point, this is on the outskirts of the city, like on the way in from where he's coming to down into the town. So he's passing by Tepeyac Hill, which had actually been a site of like native american worship as well of a goddess and he hears beautiful birds singing and he he immediately kind of realizes he's having some sort of mystical experience at least in the the recounting Mm -hmm. of the story traditionally he also sees uh flowers and this would be in december atop of this like kind of deserty yeah not desert but arid kind of not yeah i mean cactus is king (laughs) Is Central More. Mexico like that? I have like, never been to like the actual Central, like oh, further yeah. in. Only further my south and only only like I think I'm the only sibling who hasn't, or maybe me and the second have been the only ones in your who family. Have, yeah, who have no. not been. Okay, and again, sorry, I don't mean to put you as the expert of all things Mexico here, but I I clearly have not been. I know you have been to. At least to central Mexico, kind mm-hmm. of. But I mean, I, I mean, from where my family's from, there's not, you know. Like, but it would be unusual for there to be lush, vibrant flowers in the middle of December. Yes. On that yes. Hilltop. Yes. 
anyway, he kind of sees more than that. I think when he, he, when he first sees the Virgin Mary standing there, it's kind of this brilliant, like everything glowing like jewels kind of experience. It isn't even just that it's natural beauty. It's, Mm -hmm. it's clearly a very supernatural experience. Um, and then she speaks to him and I'd like to find the words just so that we're sticking to the text. Okay. I found it. And we're reading from, this is a text that is kind of the classic traditional account called the Nikon Mopoa. And according to the, we can get into more, more into the background of this, but it's at least supposedly from written sometime before Juan Diego's death in 1548. And it's reprinted in the 17th century. So, you know, about a long lifetime later, maybe to the middle of the 17th century and, and gets passed down in a more solid textual tradition from there. But this is the traditional account of what, of what he, he hears and sees. So when Juan Diego first kind of bows down in front of the Virgin Mary, um, she tells him, listen, my son, my youngest son, Juanito, where are you going? And he answers her, I'm going to your little house in Mexico. And she tells him, no, no, for sure, my dearest and youngest son, that I am truly the ever perfect Holy Virgin Mary who has the honor to be the mother of the one true God for whom we all live, the creator of people, the Lord of all around us and of what is close to us, the Lord of heaven, the Lord of earth. And I'll pause there is the the titles that she's <laughs> the title um, that she's giving to God here about like Lord of all around and what is close to us. Those are our titles of the, the in Toltec theology, the one true God who is behind kind of all the other, the polytheism. So that's interesting off the, from off the get-go, really, these aren't just like effusive Baroque kind of runnings on like you would see in maybe like Maria Agreda's visions. It's supposed to, it connects up with the Native culture. Like it's identifying to him specifically as a Native American who this God is that she's revealing to him. Mm -hmm. Anyway, she asks him to go tell the bishop in Mexico City to build a shrine for her there on Tepeyac. And he goes and tries to get that you know what sorry and now for some reason i'm going back to like what you said you know that the image isn't where it was like it's not in that hill in the tepeyac hill it's it's with the cathedral that was built later but isn't is it not still connected with the site at all i don't think we have to look that up let's check that before the end of this okay Okay, it's here in the book. So this uh, says that the new shrine... Oh, I lost it. Da, 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 da. Okay, 1976, the new Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe, located four miles from central Mexico City, is dedicated. So the, the new Basilica is not, I guess, on the same site. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I thought. That's what I remember reading. So that's why I just... I went back and, like, my brain... So you know things. It's good insight. <laughs> the local geography... Yeah. I didn't realize that. That seems kind of messed up to me. Like, shouldn't it be? At no, the site? I think you could still go. Like, oh, people okay. still pilgrimage to the site. Like, there's a statue there of her, and then there's like there's actual still Native sort of American. Like, there's there's stat there's okay. like the the image, and then there's like statues. There's statues of like Native American people kneeling to her. Oh, so there's still something there. Yeah. But. So anyway, though, Juan Diego asks for what apparently not honored in the 70s, a shrine there at Tepeyac, um, 
from the bishop and the bishop kind of listens to him a little bit and says, I, I don't have time to listen to you in full today. Come back another time and I'll give you a little bit more attention. He's a little disheartened. He leaves. And I believe there's a second apparition at that point where Virgin Mary appears to him and basically asks him how it went and gives him some encouragement and tells him that he needs to come back again. The next day. Right. And then he gets sent back. No. Uh, yeah. Well, he goes, he goes home to find his uncle very, very ill. I think that's between the third and the fourth apparition, the final one. So I think what happens first is he goes back again, talks to the bishop, whose name is um, Sumarga, I think. And then the bishop at that point says, okay, you seem sincere. Ask the virgin to bring you, to bring a sign, or to send you with a sign so that I can know that this is real. And then at that point, he gets followed home. He loses the people who follows him, you know, not on accident. They just can't follow him. He talks to the Virgin Mary again. She says, I will give you a sign. Then he goes home. That's when he finds Juan Bernardino sick, okay. I think. You're right. After, yeah, between versions three and four. So then... You mean visions? Uh, visions, not virgins. Okay. Visions of the Virgin, number three. Um, but so when he gets home, he finds Juan Bernardino very sick. This is obviously crisis because this is he's already lost his wife so this is his only relative that he has he well, i think he's well, going he's... back into town the next day and he's intentionally decides i'm not gonna stop off at tepeyac i'm gonna try to go get a priest to give juan Bernardino last rites yeah. this is really important and the virgin comes down the hill and blocks his way and mm -hmm. asks him what's going on why are, yeah why are you not coming to see me so then at that point I think she takes him to the top of the hill and says, this is going to be the sign for the bishop. Don't worry about Juan Bernardino. Take these, um, all these flowers. It's lots of Castile roses. Mm -hmm. Which yeah. is, which is like another thing that's like another sign is that these flowers are growing on this hill that are supposed to be from Spain. And um, I think at the time he understood that that was going to be the sign is the flowers by yeah. itself. Yeah. She arranges those flowers in his kind of cape poncho thing. It's called a tilma. It's like a kind of a cloak. Um, and it was supposed to be made out of cactus fibers. Another thing that I want to point out is that during this time, um, the bishop tried to take a little bit more seriously what Juan Diego was um, saying. But keep in mind that he also has advisors in the background who were kind of very suspicious of Juan Diego and were kind of advising him to like, just be very cautious. I don't know if we believe this guy. Supposedly, there was a lot of Native Americans reporting Marian apparitions to the point that they kind of, the church officials weren't taking this very seriously and thought that these were, I don't know if they if they thought that it was in, kind of meant to be a, trying to like Mock? curry favor oh. or be like exploitative in a way, oh, okay. you know, like it, that, that it just was insincere. Yeah. But in light of the fact that this is like, you know, one of the big three Marian apparitions, it kind of makes you wonder, I think, if there really were other Marian. Well, that's what I was saying is happening. I think that, you know, she probably did. She was probably appearing to the Native Americans calling them a bit. And um, but anyway. Yeah, uh, but so, who knows? But um, so he takes his his um, cloth filled with flowers. Um, yeah, the tilma. And then he goes and presents himself again at the bishop's residence. 
and they're not gonna the servants aren't gonna let him in but they see they kind of are curious about what he's got stuffed under his cloak and they kind of peek and they supposedly what happens is they see one of the flowers become like two-dimensional like turn into a picture on him at that point that's just a little miracle but that's that gets their attention and they they then tell the bishop you need to let hear this guy out yeah but just keep in mind too that juan diego was he wasn't just like waiting for an hour for the bishop he was waiting for a very long time like they kept this guy waiting before they let him so then they let him in and he i think they they basically ask him you know okay what's what's your sign yeah what's the sign and he opens up his cloak the roses drop out and at least according to the story, the image isn't just there. It appears in their sight, like yeah. miraculously and then, at that moment. Like it brightens. It's a bright image, like a light shining as it appears. The passage in the Nikon Mopoa is awesome that it has this because it's like people are standing up and sitting down and crying out and they're overawed and they're, it's just, <laughs> it's like gushes um, all the, how, how startling this event was for everybody. Um, people are crying. So it's, I thought it's, uh, I mean, it's really in, cool to imagine because it's not, he doesn't just show up with a painting. Like he went home, made a painting, came back with it. it it's supposed to have appeared luminously in, in their sight. Yeah. Um, so then at that point he has their attention. And, and they ask him to take him to the site. Yeah. They, well, I think he hangs out for the day or something with the bishop. And oh, then he yeah. takes them to Tepeyac. Um, they do shortly after that build a shrine there, which we know from other 16th century documents what there was a shrine there that was being yeah called. i think it was like the december 27th or something like that so not even that much longer yeah within the... within a couple of weeks they start 26 setting it up and then they put the the tilma there on display mm-hmm. and juan diego ends up for the rest of his life he kind of assigns himself the role of being a caretaker and he tells the story to people and he um the duty that he takes especially is the duty of keeping it clean and it was, it was really interesting in this book we read, or I read, um, it says that that was actually a position of like honor in the Aztec pagan culture had been to to be the person who sweeps up like the temple, keeps it clean. Yeah. And then one miracle that we also have to really get back to is the fact that when he goes back home, his uncle's healed. Oh, yeah. He says, I had the same vision. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a so it, of course yeah his uncle gets healed everything works out, um, and you know there's more confirmation there that this was all supernaturally inspired and arranged. So that's the basic, and then of course Oandio you know lives out his days there at the shrine. Traditionally, he's believed to be buried there in the church. That's that's basically everything that is known about Juan Diego. So that those stories get handed down for a couple generations until there's kind of a first big investigation of Guadalupe in the 17th century um, and the Tillman gets examined. And at that point, you know, it wouldn't have been evident at first, but it's becoming clear that the Tillman is not deteriorating like it should as being like particularly poor peasant cloth. And also I think people are starting to wonder about the fact that like just artistically it's kind of unusual because it's, again, it's on a very, not an ideal painting surface. And it is it seems to stay together really well for some reason. But now we're kind of getting up past the initial story and into more of the miracle stuff because that's this is basically this over and over again over the centuries is kind of what keeps happening is it keeps getting investigated. It keeps getting noticed that it's an unusual object. 
Yeah, so let's talk about the fact what what is it what do you mean by investigative? You're just I know, I'm going to kind of cuz I'm going to get lost in the details here. I guess let's hit the highlights. But basically But I what I was going to say is like rewind even a little bit and talk about the fact that there was a once this image was presented that there was a huge influx of Native American conversion. Oh yeah, so I guess the the why, the who cares part of it is that uh, after you know we'd mentioned Juan Diego is really one of the few converts before this. Mm-hmm. After this, at least going you know off the timing, there's a huge flood of Native American converts into the church, and so many so that there's thousands of people camped out around missions and churches waiting in line for a long time to is be it, baptized. Yeah, uh, Pope Paul the third or at the time. Yeah, Pope Paul Third, I think, in 1537, so like about six years after this happened, five to six years, he um, declares that the natives are able to receive the sacrament, which encourages their catechism, and um, tries to defend their humanity, so like no abuse of the people or anything like that should be happening to them. So... Yeah, I guess that, I mean, that just must speak to the... The fact that the influx of that the church there is growing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's one account that says that um, they were converting people or baptizing thousands of people every day. Um, but it also seems kind of providential because at the same time, I know even though we think of the Reformation as being in 1517, this really, like the 1530s onward, is you know it's starting to really get rolling, and so it's kind of it's like right as the millions of people in northern and western europe are leaving the catholic church really suddenly the church jumps cultural boundaries and now millions of of new people who the europeans hadn't even known were there are coming into the church suddenly and they at the end by the end of it they've actually haven't really probably lost very many total people yeah and in part of this investigation i conversation that we are going to talk about i was hoping that you could talk about more in depth to the fact that there's a reason why this image called to natives the native culture of the area um it's not i mean it's not to our trained eye at all now but the image calls out to like there are very there there's some very specific like actual like pictograms in the image that you get passed over this was so the book I was kind of referring to every once in a while is called Our Lady of Guadalupe by Carl Anderson and Eduardo Chavez. I gotta be honest, give the book maybe like three stars overall. But the most valuable part in it, which I'd give like five stars, is the discussion of the symbols on the mm-hmm. image. And there's a, in it, if if you want just like a quick glance, there's also like a documentary. Yeah, and I think actually Chavez is in that. There's a documentary mm-hmm. that was free on Prime. I don't remember the name. You probably find it if you search for it. But um, and Chavez is a, a priest who's an expert we'll on Juan Diego. We'll have it probably in the show notes. Yeah, maybe we do that. But the so if you look at the image on the Virgin's kind of gown, there's sort of this floral, a lot of this flower stuff going on, and it kind of just looks like oh, that's some sort of just baroque, you know, decorations that they they laid on there. It's not very mm-hmm. interesting. But actually, the the different flowers mean different things to Native American observers because their language was pictographs and for example the 
the four petaled flower that appears only once on the gown above the womb is the Toltec symbol for God. And it's kind of like in, in the Black Elk episode, we talked about the hoop that had the four colors on it. This is the same type of symbolism. It's supposed to be like the four directions. And in the middle, the fifth circle is like the transcendent kind of dimension. That's the, the, the divine. So that's supposed to be suggestive of God is in this virgin's womb. And there's other cues in it visually that would have like hinted at her being a virgin, at her being like harmonizing the sun and the moon, which were like the different calendars that the Native Americans worked off of. Well, I mean, isn't her veil? Uh, the, the veil has all these stars on it. And supposedly mm-hmm. people think that the stars reflect, would have been recognizable to the, the Native Americans as being the December 1531 sky mm-hmm. um, because they, they were attuned to such things because that was part of their, their culture, their calendar. But there's uh, also on the flowers, though, there's these really big flowers that kind of look like, I don't know how you describe them. I mean, they look, look like big kind of pointy um, leaves almost. But they're supposedly those are pictograms for a hilltop temple because the, the pictogram for like a new founding in their culture was a temple. And those were um, also if you looked at them from another direction because they would look at pictograms from upside down and sideways and everything. They didn't have like a right to left reading pattern. It also can look like a heart, which a heart is very, very religiously suggestive in their religion because they used to tear the heart out of sacrificial victims. Mm -hmm. But it, it also still meant like love for them and meant life. And so all these symbols tied together, like, okay, it's gonna be a new founding. Um, We're going to build a temple, like on say a place like Tepeyac. And it's going to be about love and about God coming to us through this woman. So it all, it has this very layered communication of like a new, you know, God is now coming for a new founding to you people, to the Native American viewers of this image. Yeah. Did I leave anything out? That's no, I mean, I just thought you'd want to talk about like how the way her waist is tied is supposed to suggest her that she is, is that the, the child? Oh, yeah, that's the pregnancy symbol. Mm-hmm. I think the way her hair is, it's like, parted to, in the middle and loose, it's supposed, is supposed to be the virginity. virginity. Yeah. Um, oh, another interesting part was, if you look at it, you know, you can kind of tell she's leaning on one side versus another, as far as her legs. And so that's supposed to be suggestive of a dancing kind of posture, like one knee raised. And that's a prayer posture for Native American, for I mean, for at least for them. Um, for the Mexica. So they would have seen this as a woman in, in prayer because she appears to be at the beginning of dancing. Yeah. So it's all these images in here that would have, you, someone whose language was pictures could have picked up from this. Oh, this is a virgin who's pregnant with God, who's worshiping, who's covered in like an Aztec princess style supernatural cloak and is harmonizing the moon and the sun. Mm-hmm. And it's also telling me that we should build a new temple for her based on this picture here. And yeah. it's amazing how much stuff's packed into the image. Yeah, I mean, that's once, once they got into the details, it was, like, shocking. And this is really many... well thought out. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't just something made up. Yeah. And, and the thing that, that, once again, you have to remember that this is only, like, a decade into the conquest. I highly doubt, I mean, knowing our own research as it takes today, there's, I highly doubt that, the missionaries investigated Native American culture so much 
within those 10 that years they forge that they could forge such a thing. So I guess now we should talk about what did you mean by the investigations besides just uh, obviously yeah. the one we just talked about, the the study of what the image actually refers to in the native right. culture. So there's, I guess o- over time, there's been like expert investigations of the image as far as once the technology developed to photograph it and to view it more microscopically to test out the materials it's made out of all of that. And the weird things about it are one, supposedly it can't be the the experts can't tell what kind of paint is used. um, Like what, what the paint is made out of. Another thing is that there's no identifiable brush strokes. Another thing recently is that it is based on photography of it. They can tell that there's a only a single layer of paint that was done in one sitting. The whole image is just one layer and one take. And that's, unusual one because the fabric that it's on is not an ideal painting surface it really would have needed a primer layer at least yeah before you can paint on it yeah because it would deteriorate you can think if you paint something on you know a sheet and then you bend the sheet you're gonna hurt the painting they have to restore those yeah every so often so this especially since the tillman itself has not been restored no and actually it's had some accidents over the years and some not accidents um but the tilma itself is so such bad loose weave that you, it's actually transparent in the parts where it doesn't have the image on it. So that's how not great a painting surface this would have been. But it's also just, it's impossible to paint. It's, it's not possible to paint a three-dimensional image like this in one layer in one sitting. It's just not, that's artistically not how it's done. So that's unusual. It's just, it, it shouldn't exist that way. Like photography of it in the later part of the 20th century claims at least to see images in the eyes of like accurate reflections of people. And the theory is that these would be people in the room at the time when the image appeared. Mm -hmm. Those, if you look at the images, I mean, it definitely kind of looks like there's something there and that they follow some sort of logical kind of optical pattern. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can see exactly the people that I'm supposed to be seeing in that. But anyway, the the eye thing, I think you can go either way on. The more remarkable, I think, miracle, well, one, there's the time it had acid spilled on it in the 18th century. It was being, the frame was being cleaned, I think. Mm-hmm. And somebody knocked over this heavy-duty cleaning chemical and it made a stain on the tilma. And it should have eaten straight through the cloth. And instead, it just left kind of a stain, which supposedly has been disappearing recently. So that's not normal yeah that one i could see a skeptical probably saying well then it probably wasn't really the corrosive acid that everybody's saying it is who knows but um the guy who accidentally spilled it almost got sick and uh, you know he felt pretty bad (laughs) because he almost destroyed the tilma but then the worst uh thing that ever happened to it was in the 1920s when mexico was going through its revolutionary turmoil Mm -hmm. um an anti-church government um agent with some soldiers who were in disguise, leave a bomb um, disguised as a flower display in front of the tilma. And it actually goes off and it destroys the marble altar. It, it destroys a bunch of other decorations within the church and it blows out windows like for a block around the cathedral. But the tilma itself is not hurt. That was one of the more convincing miracles for me because it, it clearly, it wasn't a matter of, it being shielded or, you know, it, it was close enough within the radius that it should have been hurt. 
but it just it just wasn't. So there's not really much else you can say about it. It's just that it, was, it stood up to this really deliberate attempt at destruction. Mm-hmm. And then I think it might have been shortly after that, the, the government tried to kind of co-opt it to make like a nationalistic alternate government-controlled church. And that didn't work out. Um, it did have kind of a revolutionary connection back with the Hidalgo Rebellion. It was their banner. You know, the, yeah, not the actual images, Tilma, yeah. but the, the image that Guadalupe yeah. became connected with the, with the Hidalgo uprising. So it's had, it's been, it's had attempts to get politicized and to get attacked politically. And it has survived all these different things in Mexican history, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. It is. So that's kind of the, the history of it up until, um, I guess, later 20th century, finally, the Juan Diego sainthood cause gets um get some traction yeah <laughs> well it kind of what i connect back sorry to those investigations is that's sort of the beginning of what finally results in the yes. end of the 20th century in the canonization of mm-hmm. juan diego yeah. i think that happened july 31st in 2002 by john paul ii and that's kind of the end of that process that starts back in the 17th century with the the investigations of the image and you know all these these studies that have happened over it over the years. But uh, I guess I kind of wanted to, before we stopped, I wanted to talk about just like Marian apparitions in general, because I think there's maybe a mistaken impression that those are really welcomed with a lot of credulity (laughs) by the church. And it's really the opposite because there's thousands of them that get reported and the church has to actually sort of do the dirty work of like shutting those down more often than not. I mean, I think we forget that like with a lot of even the same causes, like there's doctors who investigate any yeah, miracles. so with the yeah, even with the same causes, the default is kind of wait, let's stop, let's be reasonable and look for an explanation for the claimed miracle. But with visions, even more so, there's kind of a like, okay, that's a cool story. Slow your roll, though. Why you know? Let's we're not gonna give this, you know, give the Virgin Mary a new title or something just based on. Mm-hmm. your individual vision i mean like i said like there's so many visions in mexico like one that i grew up seeing a lot as a little girl was uh, the virgen de san juan de lagos yeah and that's the one that we used as the the cover art on the um on the one episode about the dirt mm-hmm. um, because that's one of the eating eating earth from that site and that's not one that is like fully recognized by the church um yeah. Oh, actually, a correction to make on our previous episode in relation to that one is that it's um, that one. The image is famous, but it's really based on a like a little statue at statue kind of mm-hmm. figurine. Um, and what I wanted to say, though, with connection to Guadalupe is that in Spain, there's also a Virgin of Guadalupe, which this one, when the Virgin appears to Juan Diego, she explicitly says, I am the Virgin of Guadalupe, apparently. And there's different theories about whether that's accurate or whether the name comes from a Native American word and just got the Spaniards recognized it, identified with Guadalupe. But it's a statue also, the one in Spain. What I So I'm going to play a little bit of, I mean, not really play devil's advocate, but just talk about the fact that there are people who do talk, who try to talk about this without any religious context. And I think it's it's pretty difficult from even that one book I think we both have taken just a quick glimpse at tries to view it in a you know for, without the religious context but all in all I don't think you can take it away from the culture 
for one thing. And I don't think you can, well, one, you can't take it away from the culture and not see its impact as it is for Mexico. And then two, I don't think people can deny, I don't want to say it's goodness, but kind of like the the beauty that it brings, I guess, and, and kind of like the miracles that come along with it, you know? I don't think that that can be denied. Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> something I was annoyed about reading some of the the one more skeptical scholarly book was just that they seem so willing to admit that there's a pre-Christian like tradition behind it such that it's not legitimate, but they're not willing to admit that there's a actually that the Juan Diego tradition behind it is legitimate. So it's like, well, okay, yeah, well, there's no way it goes all the way back to being in the 16th century and that's the saint story, but it definitely goes all the way back to the 14th century and it's this pagan Aztec goddess and that's really what's behind this. Like we're okay, we'll admit that there's a tradition behind it as long as it debunks the the Catholic meaning. Yeah, which I think takes away from Juan Diego. Like it just takes away from his story and his. I think it takes away from the millions of Native American Catholics who received that story enthusiastically over the century after him, because they it's saying that these experts now who are Americans in the 20th century, you know, the three people who speak Nahuatl or something now are bigger experts in it than the, the people that at the time whose grandparents had known Juan Diego or who knew traditions about him. It's, I mean, it's just, it's saying these experts now are more, more authoritative than these people who were in the culture at the time. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. with when people try to debunk the Gospels. And I think this is also the skepticism about Guadalupe also tracks very closely with that. It starts in like the 19th century and goes into the 20th the same way like the critics of the, the modern critics of the Gospels who claim to debunk it. Yeah. It I mean, arises. there's a reason why it still speaks, I think, too. And her image is so strong, like in Texas and in Mexico. And it, it's just it's just an image we know. Growing up, you know, it was not one that I knew growing up. I mean, up, but I think no. it is very impressive now learning about yeah, it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I didn't learn, you know, grow up saying Mama Mary, but it is more of a the verbiage I've kind of grown to talk about her. I, you know, would say things like, like the. And this the is Blessed a, Virgin. well, and then this is like one thing that I brought up with Jake that I in reading the. The text, it reminds me of how in Mexican culture, like, that is how you speak to people. Like, oh, yeah, you like say... Like, the very, like, like, repetitive, like, a little Juan Diego one. Yeah, one that Diego, that the, Virgencita, and, you know, just, like, it's not... You have to understand, in, like, Spanish, or Mexican Spanish, like, you call them... Ninito, ni, you don't just say niño, like, boy. You say my ninito or, you know, like you get that ito to kind of like, it's like a cutesy, like, I, well, I don't know if it's cutesy, but it's just like a, a loving way to kind of be like little boy or. And you're referring to like in the story when she says, um, my youngest son, Juanito, where are you going? Well, not just that. It's, it's, it's both, they're both languages together. Like him talking to her oh, too. Oh, yeah. Or he, so I didn't read this part. What he says back to her is my lady, my queen, my little girl. And that's, I mean, that's very much it, the, the language that's even still spoken today. Like my dad, 
like to this day he doesn't just say my daughter like my niña or my hijita or sorry my hija he would say like my mijita my my hija my hijita you know it's like adding that loving verbiage about like it it it's kind just of affectionate thing. little yeah and it's it's still like it's still with us those those words those that verbiage used is still used today from like within my family and stuff yeah and some of that stuff is foreign to my experience unfortunately i mean it, everybody has their own culture but that's that's not so much part of mine you know it's just yeah and, and that's like, part of what maybe can be make it unfortunately a barrier to catholics of you know maybe english irish exp- extraction like a lot of americans are to then getting into the guadalupe miracle story even though it's one of the kind of the big three like the other two being fatima and lords i think a lot of american catholics maybe have an easier time getting into the lords tradition than with than into the guadalupe one but anyway that all that to say is actually uh, and i just mentioned there's really only three big recognized apparitions there's lots and lots of other recognized marian apparitions but the way it works is normally when these if a private revelation as it's called is reported it's usually handled at the local level first so your local bishop then if it's a difficult case it might go to the conference of like the national conference of bishops and if it's continues to be controversial they might invite the vatican um an office of the vatican to intervene and to evaluate it so all that's to say is like it's not really that easy to kind of go rogue Catherine of Siena style and go straight to the top to the Pope to get recognition for your Marian apparition. Not that she had one, but really these are handled at the local level. And when they, even when they're given an approval, it's more of like an approval of being worthy of belief and devotion and not necessarily the church saying, yeah, that definitely happened. We looked into this person's heart and we believe it's all true. They're not going to be willing to make that call. And that's kind of as it should be because these are private revelations, even the Guadalupe one. They're not part of the public revelation, which is just the scriptures and the, to some extent the traditions with a capital T that are actually handed down by the church. Is that accurate, you think? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where these fit in broadly is actually the church takes a pretty skeptical stance. And you can even see that in the story with the bishop doesn't immediately rush to affirm Juan Diego, and they're actually kind of worried that these apparition reports are fraudulent. Um, And that's, you know, that can kind of put a damper on things when people want to really get caught up in the spirit, but it's a safer attitude for the church to have so that it doesn't just get caught up with every new new thing that that comes along. And another thing I wanted to mention, just because it relates back to our previous episode about Black Elk. So I read a book... Again, my example of my research kind of going off the off the rails and going down a wormhole is called "A Small, a Still Small Voice" by Father Benedict Grishel, and that was, was really worth reading. It's a really short book about not just about Marian apparitions, but about like private revelations, and it talks about sort of the church's teachings on that. And um, it mentioned though that like these these uh, visions are not considered like the highest forms of of like mystical experience in the church. They're not higher than just living a normal everyday life of holiness. And the definitely, I think Virgin of Guadalupe has kind of had a, more of a fruit of that variety. Like mm-hmm. it's inspired a lot of regular unnoticed devotion. And uh, so I just want to point out that book and give it a shout out because I thought it was useful. Any final thoughts, Celia? 
thank you for your patience with us. Um, uh, we are just dealing with stuff, aka fourth <laughs> baby on the way. So any prayers that you have for us would be great. And also, um, it's our toddler in the background. Also, um, if you f- feel free to sh- share this podcast with others, uh, and um, I think that that's about it. That's about it. We will continue probably to take a few months between episodes, and um, as we get as we get used to the new rhythm of life. Yeah, it has worked. I hope that you come back in a few months. And I thought it'd be nice if we ended with a hail mary, considering the subject of the episode. Father, Son, Son Holy Spirit, Spirit Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All right, thank you. <laughs>